0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We have a very special guest for you today. Rays Vice President of Baseball Operations, Hayam Bloom, joins us after the Rays had nine players on the BA Top 100 prospects, tied with the 2011 Royals and this year's Padres for the most all time. The Rays obviously are coming off a 90-win season. They have one of the top systems in the game, and they're in a very, very good place moving forward. Haim has been with the Rays since 2005 as an intern, climbed the ladder. Now he's uh, the head honcho, as they say. And We're joined by Haim right now from uh, Port Charlotte. Haim, first of all, thank you for joining us. And secondly, you guys had nine top 100 prospects tying the uh, Baseball America all-time record. When you look at your system right now, do you see that level of, of talent, and is it greater than maybe any other group you've seen come through in, in your many years with the Rays?
1: Well, you guys know uh, how important it is for us, uh, especially in our situation with the the revenue disadvantages we have in our division. You know, against some of the teams that we play, uh, how important it is for us to uh, to have a strong system, and that's been a major emphasis of ours. It always is, but especially the last we really like the position we're in now uh, with a lot of depth up and down the system, some guys who have already started to make an impact, some who are ready to and then some further away but we're really excited about. Uh, you never like to uh, you know get too uh, you know, you pat yourself on the back too much, so to speak. but I would say you know having I mean, have been here a long time, I think in terms of just the sheer depth, you know guys that we have who we'll have a chance to make a major league them back. I think this is as good a position as we've been in probably since I've been here.
0: Yeah, one of the things that really stood out to me—you look back at the previous era of prolonged race success, that 08 to 2013 range—a lot of it was was out of the draft. James Shields, David Price, Jeremy Hellickson, Wade Davis, obviously Evan Longoria on on the position player side. This current group is is very largely international. Wander Franco, number one overall, but Ronaldo Hernandez, Jesus Sanchez, Vidal Brujan, Uh, You mentioned that emphasis on homegrown talent. Was there an emphasis within that to really start, um, you know, sowing the the oats in the international market, if you will?
1: Yeah, there's no question. Um, And, you know, obviously not to ignore, uh, you know, good work coming out of the draft also. And I I believe uh, all the guys on that list are players that were originally, uh, you know, scouted and signed by our staff, whether domestically or internationally. Um, But, I think our international program has really matured the last number of years, and we're really starting to see the fruits of that. And it's a testament to an incredible amount of hard work on the part of a lot of people, Carlos Rodriguez and Patrick Walters, guiding that scouting department um, and, and moving into leadership roles in it, you know, within the last half-decade or so. Uh, but going back, you look at Danny Santana, uh, our scouting supervisor of the Dominican, Ronnie Blanco, who's overseen our Venezuelan efforts. Those guys have been with us Beginning, and I think we're starting to see, you know, over the results of the last few years, we're just seeing the fruits of their labor. The international domain is one where uh, you really, um, you know, you really benefit from boots on the ground and from uh, essentially having a strong ground game, as it were. Uh, There's no substitute for your guys beating the bushes, knowing where the players are, having the relationships to get those players to your academy um, and get them signed, and our guys have done a great job of that.
0: Yeah, what what's changed? Because uh, just looking back, there was a time where international success w- was not necessarily the Rays' forte, and now it seems like it, it kind of is. What's changed?
1: Well, when you look back a uh, decade plus uh, when we had our ownership change, and we were really uh, starting from scratch in terms of a presence uh, on the ground in Latin America in particular, uh, we didn't really have a program under the previous ownership that it had been. Kind of reduced to just about nothing. So we were starting from scratch, and I think a lot of this is the natural maturation of those efforts. Um, but I think you also see, uh, you know, and I think Carlos deserves a, a lot of credit for this, uh, you see just uh, a refinement of a lot of the processes we use and just a much better, I think, flow of information and, and communication uh, from international scouting up to, uh, you know, everything else that we have going on in the organization. Uh, and I also think. Uh, when you look at, you know, when you're talking about really any player that comes to the system, but I think especially international players uh, who are signed uh, at such a young age, uh, and they're so far away, and they're probably the furthest away from what they can be if they're to be successful big leaguers. And so there's a player development component in this, too, where uh, they're the rawest of resources that we bring in, and so you really have to develop them and have programs that can bring the most out of them. And I think it's a great communication between scouting and player development and, and through a lot of our player development efforts um, with our, uh, our, our U.S.-based coordinators uh, and uh, overseeing our program down there and helping uh, bring it you know, really into, in, in, into line with a lot of what we've done in the States and, and, and just really be one unit and one team. I think that's helped bring the most out of the raw talent uh, that our scouts have been able to bring
0: in. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of these guys, they're 16 years old. As you said, it's extremely, extremely raw. Um, Just like in the draft, there's going to be hits and misses. Adrian Rondon was a top international prospect. So far, his career has not gone as expected. But on the other side, you get someone like Juan DeFranco, who was the number one prospect in his class. Obviously, we at BA have him the number four prospect in all of baseball. Again, there was plenty of interest surrounding him. He was a known commodity on the international market, being the top guy in his class. But just how quickly he's adjusted and produced has it even surprised you guys?
1: Yeah, I don't think you can ever expect uh, you know a player to take to pro ball as well as Wander has. I mean, obviously we were very high on him, and, and, and you mentioned Rondone as well. And you know this game is humbling. Uh, both years, we thought we had signed the top player in the class, um, and uh, Adrian uh, hasn't been able to get up to the start of his career that uh, that, that that you hope uh, with an investment like that. Uh, and Wander, I think, exceeded even our lofty expectations. We knew this was a guy coming from the baseball family that he did that was very mature, had an advanced feel for the game. You know, there's a lot of players he signed um, at 16-year-olds uh, who have great tools and great upside. Uh, not that many of them, you know, come into pro ball really understanding how to play the game, where all those tools can be immediately applied. Uh, and we thought we were getting that in Wander, but to say that we could have expected this, I think. Uh, you know, we'd be kidding ourselves. What he showed this past year, um, you know, what he was able to do on the field, how he did it, uh, you know, how he carries himself, uh, the energy he brings, it's really played out uh, even better than anything we could have expected.
0: With that, the jump from rookie ball to full season ball, it's a whole different ball game. both the level of talent, also just the length of the season. When you look at a guy like Wander Franco, what is the biggest developmental uh, thing you want to see from him this coming season, and what are you going to be looking for when he makes his way out to, to Bowling Green or, or possibly even Port Charlotte?
1: Yeah, The way he beat in you know, pro ball, I don't think he put anything past him. Uh, I think he has what it takes to conquer any challenge that comes his way. That's, of course, not to say that he's automatically going to do it. There's going to be bumps in the road there are for every player. Uh, they look different for every player, but uh, you know, this is our game. It's not going to be seamless. For anybody. Uh, and I'm sure Wander's going to face some challenges. But I think, you know, obviously you mentioned the long season. Um, and this will be the longest season that he'll have that, you know, played. Um, and that's going to test him in some ways. We think he's up to the challenge, but it is going to test him. And I think, especially when you look at shortstops in particular, there's a day in, day out consistency that the best at that, that position possess. And it's probably true of any uh, excellent major league player, but I think it's particularly true of championship caliber shortstops. Uh, there's a you know a reliability factor day in day out. Uh, the late Jim Hawks, who we all miss very much, used to call them two out shortstops. But you have a, uh, a great confidence that two outs and the tying run on third base and a routine ground ball to the guy that that he's gonna he's gonna get that out. And that involved a day to day focus. Uh, obviously, they're all capable of doing it. The question is, can you rely on your guy every single day, to fix the field, uh, to be in a frame of mind to, to do that? You know, almost every single time. And that's something that a long season tests, and that's something that no matter how physically gifted you are, uh, you know, part of the developmental path is establishing that.
0: There's no question about it. Consistency is is a big, big part of uh, becoming a big leaguer. It's not just honing the tools. You know, within that regard, as a whole, your organization, a lot of teams employ a lot of versatility at the big league level. We've seen the Cubs and the Dodgers do it. What's been interesting watching your guys' system is you guys are starting that process earlier. A lot of these guys are doing it in the minor leagues. You know, with a talent like Wander, is he a guy you want to expose to second base, to third base, to shortstop? Or at this point, do you just want to let him focus on shortstop and and the versatility in general? Does that start to come in later up the ladder?
1: Yeah, this is always a good conversation uh, with with a guy like him uh, or some other guys that we have that we see having the potential to you know, impact the game as everyday shortstops in the big leagues. Um, you know, I think I think the industry's thinking and our thinking on this has evolved over the years, where even with a guy that you see having the ability to be an everyday shortstop, um, you know, it used to be that I think when you would see them playing other positions, you might view that as some sort of a demotion or some sort of a lack of confidence in their ability to play short. And uh, now I think we're evolving to see it as just another uh, tool in their toolbox and another way that they can... Uh, create value at the major league level. I mean, we saw that with Willie at when we were mixing to second base, um, you know, which just gave Kevin more options uh, once Willie got up there, even though we do uh, like Willie at short. So, you know, right now I think we're going to keep, uh, you know, playing Wander at shortstop. It wouldn't shock me to see that happen at some point, just for the exact same reason you know, I just said, where, um, you know, when you get to the big league level, now you have different things you can do during the game. It may be that for one reason or another, shortstop isn't the best position for him to play on a day to day. Uh, or even intra game, you might, you know, a position switch might uh, make sense depending on who, uh, who else is on your club and what the game situation is. So you, you, you want to make sure you have as many options as you can. Uh, that's probably something I would see as missing it at some point, but I don't anticipate it being a very near term thing.
0: A couple of other guys up the ladder. You guys, again, have, have been very, very um, prevalent in, in using guys at different positions from the big league level all the way down to your minors. We saw it with Brandon Lau. Uh, we saw it a little bit with Jake Bowers before you guys traded him. The guy who's probably doing it the most uniquely is Brendan McKay. Uh, you guys drafted him, allowed him to play both ways. To this point, his pitching is, is ahead of his hitting on the development ladder. What is that conversation like in terms of saying, okay, do we just... Keep running him up because he's got a good left arm, or do you keep him down to let the bat catch up? What is that conversation like with Brendan McKay?
1: Yeah, it is a constant conversation because, you know, the uniqueness of Brendan's talent it's something that's new to us. We obviously, you know, prior to this had not, you know, had a true two way player, and we certainly hadn't had someone who was as accomplished on both sides of the record, you know, coming out of the draft. There was a legitimate debate uh, in the industry and, and, and in our draft room about you know, which side of the game, which side of the ball better on. And that was high praise because we liked them a lot on both sides, uh, which is part of why we were so happy to get him uh, when we did in the draft. But, uh, you know, I think the key to this as we've gone through it uh, is you know, it's twofold. One is communication and making sure, uh, you know, this involves obviously a, a lot of different people on our staff working together and also working with Brendan. Brendan has a tremendous uh you know, head on his shoulders and a really good idea of what he's trying to accomplish. And, you know, we've we've tried to maintain close communication with him on how he's doing. And I think it also involves, you know, a large degree of humility and understanding that we, we like him a lot on both sides of the ball. And we'd love to say, here, we have a crystal ball. We know exactly how the future is going to turn out, uh, but we don't. And so we're going to let the game teach us and just keep an open mind on which way it will go and not necessarily think at any given point that we have it all figured out and. Continue to keep an open mind and let Brendan and let the game of baseball show us uh,
0: exactly what path that going to take. Obviously, the success of Shohei Otani in, in Anaheim showing that it was, in fact, possible to be successful, both pitching and hitting, has, has a lot of clubs now at least entertaining the idea of two-way players. At the same time, very few in the world have the level of talent Otani does you guys are obviously trying this with Brendan McKay. There, there's been some discussion as well about other players on the free agent market who might you know, fill that role, like a Matt Davidson. How prevalent do you think this can become? And I want to ask you that specifically because the Rays in general have been at the forefront of doing some maybe unorthodox things in the game of baseball.
1: Yeah, it certainly I think has expanded uh, maybe what people think is possible, and that probably includes us. I mean, last year we took Tanner Dodson, uh, you know, with a fairly high pick, and we sent him out as a two-way player, and uh, he had a good first summer. And you know, that's a little easier to do after having had a little bit of experience with it, as we have with Brendan. Um, you know, I think the thing you have to be careful about here is not trying to get too clever, uh, and you don't want. To uh, do things just for the sake of uh, being different or to try to force something that isn't there. But at the same time, uh, I do think what we're seeing, you know, as a result of of Otani and, and, you know, Brendan and, and, you know, probably some other factors, that we're seeing a little bit of a broader definition, I think, in, in people's minds around the game of what might be possible and maybe a little bit more willingness to try some things that could make sense and could work, even if they're not the way it's always been done.
0: I know there's probably not a clear-cut answer to this, but what's like the demarcation line where you say, okay, we're willing to do this, and then what's the point where you might say, okay, we want to focus a guy on just doing one?
1: Yeah, I think that's something we're learning as we go, and you, you alluded to it with Brendan where you know his results on the mound have been so phenomenal that it's brought up that question. Now, I think a lot of the information that underlies his offensive performance, I think, paints a much stronger picture than the surface line to date. Um, which is a big reason why we're you know continuing on this path of doing both uh, I don't know that there's a, a fixed answer to that I think um, and I'm not sure there should be kind of a uh, you know a, a broad-based answer that applies to every player because I think it's really important to weigh the individual player and it's not just the results they're producing it's also how they're handling it uh, there's some subjectivity to this I think the main thing that we try to do is make sure um, that we have a consistent thought process, uh, that we're documenting it as well as we can, uh, knowing there's a lot of subjectivity and that we're weighing a lot of opinions. We want to make sure that we're handling it properly and that we're, we're thinking clearly on this. Uh, but I don't know that there is any specific way to know this just because every single player is so individual.
0: Absolutely. It's, it's definitely a, a fine line that has yet to be defined, and I think we're all going to be watching just with some curiosity to see how it all unfolds. Another avenue that you guys obviously created something that was a little bit different. Um, there had been bullpen games before, but they did the opener with something you guys debuted last year and, and had a good chunk of success with, uh, essentially using a reliever to start and then in some cases like a Ryan Yarborough having a starter's load of innings. It's just innings two through six or two through seven. You guys have some premium pitching prospects in your system. Brent Honeywell coming back from Tommy John's surgery. McKay, as we mentioned. Matt Libertor, who... We at BA had as the number two draft prospect, and he slid to you guys at 16. Now that you guys have had success with the opener, when you guys are scouting or evaluating guys, whether it's in your system or in the amateur market, are you guys looking for guys that you say, you know, we think they can fill this opener role? Or are you still looking for guys who fit the traditional starter's mold, and if something goes sideways, then you can shift them into the opener?
1: That's a good question. Um, You know, certainly as guys' careers go along, for various reasons, you might think that uh, you know having this new role maybe opens up some possibilities. But first and foremost, it's about talent. Uh, what we've done with our pitching has really been just a question of uh, getting the most out of the talent of the players that we have. And if you don't have talented players, it, it doesn't matter what order you roll them out uh, out there in. Um, so I, I don't think you're going to be able to make up for for not having talented players. And that's really first and foremost when it comes to you know, our amateur player acquisition. That's what we're looking for. I think, you know, especially in the draft, especially on the international arena, it's a little early to know exactly what role guys are going to fit in. Um, And I think if you get away from just trying to find the most talented players you can, I think you're
0: doing yourself a disservice. It's all fair. And clearly uh, there's a lot of talent in the system with uh, nine top 100 guys and, and one of the top systems in baseball. One guy I want to ask about because he's a little bit interesting. Most of these guys were drafted, uh, at least among the draft picks, fairly high-ish. Nate Lowe is someone who was not uh, a double-digit draft guy who wasn't even the, the first guy you guys drafted from his own family. Um, really took a leap from, from high A to triple A last year. He fits more that traditional player mold and, hey, he's, he's a first baseman. That's probably what he is. What do you see his role as, you know, for the Rays in the future, and, and what steps did you see him take this year to get to this level?
1: Well, I think the the offensive prowess that Nate showed last year, uh, you know, if he continues on this path, uh, that, that path's going to play at the big league level. Um, you know, you talked about uh, him kind of to this point overachieving, I think, what was expected of him based on his draft status. It's funny, you know, it's easy to... Uh, you know, when you, when you get someone like that, where we got him in the draft, it's easy to look back and just congratulate yourself. You also got to look back and think, you know, should we have been higher on him at the time? Were we missing things that, you know, we we were fortunate to be able to get him where we did, but were we missing things that where we should have been willing to take him even sooner than we did? Um, and now you look at where he's gotten, uh, in terms of last year, I think just coming out with a clearer head, um, you know, physically in a better position to hit. And then I think mentally swing wise, uh, just much simpler, much looser than he was the year before. He'd always hit the ball hard, but I think because the swing was a little simpler and the approach was simpler, um, and he, and he kind of got back to a much looser, and much more flexible, all field approach. Uh, he was really able now to, to take those hard hit balls and start, start driving them. And, uh, he, you, you would see him do it to all fields against all pitch types, um, And that's really encouraging. This wasn't, uh, you know, just something where he was muscling his way to some power. Uh, You know, he is very strong, but but he was a really good hitter, and that's very encouraging for for what we hope comes next.
0: Obviously, the results were there, uh, and he continued to do it the higher he climbed. One other thing I noticed when looking at your guys' system last year, uh, fair or not the Rays have always had a reputation for moving their guys slowly through the minors. But we saw you guys skip Wander Franco over the GCL. Brandon Lau went up from AA all the way to the majors. Nate Lowe, high a, or high a to AAA. Are you guys starting? Has there been a conscious decision to start moving some guys faster, or was it more just these guys, you know, kind of on an island doing this?
1: I think we've always tried to do what's best for the individual player in the context of his development and try to, as best as we can, to, you know, place the player where we, where we think uh, – He's going to benefit the most developmentally. Now that's led us in some instances to be pretty deliberate, especially early in players' careers. But in the case of the guys that you mentioned, you know, Wander, there was a strong consensus among our staff uh, that he could handle that assignment. And obviously, uh, like I said, I don't think we could have expected he, what he did. But you know, certainly there was a lot of confidence that he was going to be able to handle that, that you know, aggressive assignment to Princeton. And in the case of those other two guys, uh, you know, they dictated, you know, that development path just by their performance and and by what they did on the field. And, you know, we didn't want to have them in a place where we felt they weren't going to be challenged uh, appropriately. And, uh, you know, that's not just based on their production uh, on the surface. It never is, but it certainly helps, uh, you know, especially in the mind of the
0: player, um, you know, when they produce like that. You guys have this farm system, but you also acquired two guys last year that technically are no longer prospects. They're young enough, and their major league careers have been short enough. You could almost envision them as being prospect-like in Austin Meadows and Tyler Glass. Now, when you acquire two guys like that, who again prospect eligibility is done, they have been in the majors, but they're not established yet. Do you treat them and how you want to develop them almost like you would a prospect, or do you see them as major leaguers?
1: I don't know that we would, you know, draw that much of a hard line in terms of distinguishing how they handle them. I mean. Even at the major league level, and especially when you have a young club, you're still looking to develop your players. You know the idea that player development stops once they gets to the big leagues. You know I, I think that's something uh, that we've never believed, and that I think increasingly around baseball you see uh, being something that that is being thrown out. That there's always a quest to develop and improve players. Uh, both of these guys have achieved a lot in their pro careers, and they've also you know had some rough spots and. Hope you see some growth and learning from those, and I, I think we did in getting those two guys. You could see uh, both where there was room for growth, but you can also see the lessons they had taken from some of the ways in which that they, they had struggled. I think, you know, when you, when, you know, especially in Austin's case, being a high pick uh, and, you know, having a very impressive journey through the low minors, and then you see how they respond to to some of the the ups and downs, and I think that gives you a lot of confidence. In how they handle things going forward. Uh, it was great having both those guys the last couple of months, the last year, um, and integrating them into our organization. They took really well to a lot of the things we're doing with them. But for the most part, we were just trying to, uh, you know, step back and learn about them uh, and let them play. And it was fun to be able to do that.
0: Absolutely. And then Austin Meadows definitely showed some exciting stuff uh, once he got to Durham and, and obviously came up with you guys a little bit. Uh, just overall, you know, you talked at the start of this podcast about. As a small market team with financial constraints, you guys have to have that constant renewable resource of, of homegrown talent that you can bring up. When you look at your club right now, you have this system with a record-tying nine top 100 guys, guys like Meadows, Glasnow, Willie Adamas, and uh, Blake Snell, Cy Young winner, all in the big leagues still in their, in their 20s, really in the start of their careers in a lot of ways. Is this where you wanted to be with the combination of the young talent at the big level with this level of a farm system? Was this, was this kind of the goal as far as organizational depth?
1: Ideally, yes. Now, saying that, um, look, last year we, we obviously, I think, we were, we were happy with a lot of things that happened last year. But at the same time, we only played 162 games. And the goal is to get to the postseason. The goal is to be able to do that uh, year in and year out. So as much as we like the position that we've gotten into uh, in terms of the depth in our system, in terms of the, the number of young, quality players in our major league club, that's all really exciting. Now the goal is to take the next step and, and to start having some champagne celebrations around here and hopefully to be able to do that on an annual basis. So while we're excited about the position we're in, I can't necessarily sit here and say this is where we want to be. It's a step on the way to where
0: we want to be. Correct. The goal is to win games at the major league level and, and win a World Series, not win uh, organizational talent rankings. Hi, On a more personal note, you've been with the Rays since uh, February 2005. You've seen this organization go through multiple ownership changes, multiple uh, just changes in philosophy over the years. How would you say things have kind of transformed from, from when you started to, to where they are today?
1: That's a really good question. I think, you know, over like this large amount of time, and especially since, you know, we, we had the, the change to our current ownership at the end of 2005, I think we've grown a lot, and I think we've grown together, um, experienced a lot of wonderful things, um, and, you know, we've also uh, learned from some some tougher experiences, but I think the thing that has been the constant, and the thing that for me is probably, you know, one of the greatest satisfactions of doing the job that I do is the emphasis on you know, our people and the people that I get to work with. And this organization, the successes that we've had, obviously credit the players uh, for everything they do on the field, but from a staff perspective, it's built on the hard work and the efforts of so many people uh, that, you know, are just great teammates and so wonderful to work with. And I think, if anything, I like to think that's really been kind of our North star over this period of time is, is uh, our emphasis on our people and how we work together, uh, and how we try to support each other and, and work as one, and uh, that's extremely gratifying, and it's just a whole lot of fun to come to work every day uh, with the people I do. And you know, when we do experience success, the you know the fact that we did it as a group and a lot of different people had a hand in it, and uh, we got on the same page and, and accomplished something. Uh, improbable and something great. That's probably the most satisfying part uh, of having success in this team for me and uh, it's what I look forward to. Hopefully with future success to come.
0: Absolutely. A healthy work environment is definitely a fun place to go and obviously you guys uh, have exceeded expectations multiple times and it'll be very interesting to see how this uh, wave of farm talent comes up and and joins the major league level. Uh, Haim, thank you so so much for joining us Uh, and uh, we wish you all the best of luck this coming season.
1: Appreciate it, and thank you for having
0: me. Well, there you have it, High and Bloom on what the future holds for the Tampa Bay Rays. Definitely going to be one of the more interesting organizations to watch, big leagues all the way down the next couple of years as they uh, try to develop some two-way players. And we'll see how much the opener is employed in the coming years, and just what the development path looks like for all these talented prospects. We'd like to thank High and Bloom for joining us, and uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and let us know on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to. We always value your feedback. It's been another fun one, everybody. For High and Bloom, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening.